Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Bosun's mate, first class, Nelson Dubrock. Dubrock served in the Normandy invasion with a Naval Combat Demolition Unit. It was their job to destroy obstacles with explosives in order to clear the way for the rest of the invasion. Actually, we were drinking beer at the beer garden in Camp Perry one night. And then uh, this guy, Jake Dumas, on the way back to the barracks, he said uh, they were having a meeting and recruiting guys for demolition. And, you know, maybe we ought to go see. So we went down there and listened to them and signed up. I found out then I wasn't going to be stuck in one place all the time. So that sounded pretty good. All we knew that we were going in demolition and whatever assignment they gave us. I thought of it as a privileged outfit because we were privileged. Oh, we had no no duties like KP or guard duty or fire watches, uh, nothing like that. And we had our Liberty card in our pocket after... The first part of your training, you could go to town every night, you know? And we was first in the pay line, first in the mess hall line. We got good pay. Why? Well, they just told us to from the get-go that we would be that way. That we would, that was some of our privileges for being in that unit. I guess to give you an incentive to sign up, you know, because when you walk in guard duty in the snow or in boot camp, it wasn't too great, you know. So that uh, that that was something to look forward to, you know. And then they also told us that uh, you would travel a lot, and you you would be exposed to danger, but it wouldn't be for that long, like the infantry. You know, they went on and on and on and on. 
about, I'd say after the second day, we on a picnic. Our job was to place charges uh, of C2, which was the explosive that we used, place them on the obstacles on the beaches, and then tie them into a ring main as the guys came around. You know, had a ring main tied into the main ring main and then blow these obstacles up. Oh, well, we went first through what they call hell week. Had, you know, one week of pure hell. And then later on, we learned about explosives, the different formulas and power and stuff like that and how much to use and all. And we had all these figures in our head, but we, we never had to use any of that. They just had the... C2 in a little canvas bag with a hook on one end, a cord on the other end. <clears throat> Excuse me, and you wrapped it around the obstacle and tied it to the ring main. Uh, they weren't really dangerous. You had to be careful. I mean, you couldn't just, you know, put fire on it. But as long as you didn't have a detonator on it, it wasn't all that bad. We used to play pitch and catch with this stuff. You know, that, that it was like putty. Like Play-Doh. Like it normally, all we used was C2. Now, if you wanted to blow a channel, we'd use what they call rubber hose, which had granulated TNT in it. They were about 20 feet long. Well, we had trained in England. We went to Salcom. We trained on, on the beaches. They had the obstacles like they had on the beaches, and we trained coming into the beach and hooking the stuff on the obstacles and all that. And we really didn't know it was going to be for D-Day. We were just training for that. And then about maybe three or four or five days before D-Day, they put us on the ship. And uh, that's when we, my unit was on the Princess Maud. And then they, yeah, that all the crews, Every crew would get in a little separate huddle with his officer, and you kept looking at pictures of the beach. And they, you had pictures of all these obstacles and where they were and where they were set up, and everybody was assigned one particular job. You had, you know, a particular job to put on certain obstacles with the uh, C2 explosives. Just another move going in combat, that's all. We going in there to clear the beaches. We knew it was for real, but uh, we didn't know how big of an undertaking it was. They had told us that uh, towards the end of the uh, programming, I guess you'd call it, you know, when they were showing us all these pictures and all, they told us that the Navy was going to shell the beach and the approaches to the beach and everything was going to be pretty well cleared up and the opposition was going to be minimal and all that kind of stuff, you know. So we, we, we really wasn't too concerned, you know, just not a dry run. I remember when we had signed up for the thing, they had told us that the possibility of casualties would have been heavy, you know, that maybe two or three out of five would get hit, you know, get hurt. But uh, actually, for D-Day, I didn't 
myself. It, it never dawned on me that I was going to get hurt. I could get hurt. Of course, when you're 18 years old, you know, you're, you're pretty well uh, shockproof or invincible. You think you are anyway. One of the reasons I, I went in this thing, I was in the CBs in Camp Perry. And then I found out that the CBs would, might get put on an island or wherever, and you'd work there, and then you was just stuck there, you know. And this thing here, they told us we'd be traveling around, and you wouldn't be stuck in one place all the time, and you'd get plenty of liberty, and you'd get paid well. Sounded good. Our primary objective was to clear like a 50-foot gap so that when the tide came in, we could guide these boats in through the gaps and then they could get the uh, infantry in, you know, that much easier, you know, so it wouldn't expose them to as much danger, I guess. But that was our primary focus. We... Came in there, I guess, about 6.30 or less, you know, about that time, because the weather was so rough. Not one unit landed, I don't think, right on time or in the specific place that they were supposed to land. But it didn't make too much difference because all the beach was the same, all the obstacles were the same. And when we landed, we were looking at the pictures, you know. The only difference is they were shooting at us. And then we just picked up. We couldn't get that rubber boat full of explosives off the LCM, so we just picked up as much as we could carry and just jumped in and started putting them on the obstacles. And the casualties in the front, they had Army people in the front of the boat. I guess they maybe they were there to protect us. And when they dropped the ramp, they fired the guns right into the to the boat, and these guys were just laying there, you know, so we had to climb over them to get out, and they couldn't pick that boat up. So we just picked up as much stuff as we could and went in went in with it. As soon as we came out of the landing craft, we started putting the charges on the, on the obstacles. They had these uh, Belgian gates, they called them, you know, big gates set up like the... Like you see on where they're doing road work, they have these barricades and all. Then they had uh, stuff look like uh, the jacks that the girls played with. They had these on the beach. You had to put it in a crook, blow that out. And they had posts with telemines on top of them and stuff like that. The pack was about this long and maybe two inches, you know, like so. Then on one end, they had an iron hook, you know, on one end. On the other end, they had a sash guard, and you just take it and wrap it around there and hook the sash guard in the, in the hook, and it would stay there. Then you take the, the primer card that was onto the firing cap inside the charge, and you tie it onto the primer card. We got a bunch of it done right on the water's edge, and then we were going to blow it up, you know, to pull the fuse. Actually, they pulled the fuse, and then uh, 
Bill Vinion told me later the reason they didn't blow it, well, everything was snafu'd then. The army was coming in on top of it, and you couldn't blow the thing with the army coming in. You know, you blew them up. So they cut the fuse, and then we come back later and put it back in there because it was, with the weather was so bad, you had the rough seas and all the confusion. It made it kind of, kind of tough. It's stuff flying all over the place. I mean, these are, you know, it's about four, five, six feet high, some of them, the ones way out in the water. And we'd put charges all over, and then that was all angle iron, you know, for about four-inch angle iron, I guess. And when that stuff started flying around, it was there was no place to hide. You just lay there and hope it don't come down on you. That's where they had this fire in the hole. You'd holler and they'd get out those that could, you know, get out as best they could. Some of them, you'd drag them out. I never did drag anybody out, but I know some people that did. You couldn't just leave them there if you could help it. You'd, you'd try and protect them. Like I say, when you'd fire it, this stuff was flying all over. Some would fly straight up, some sideways, and so maybe that would fall on you or the Germans hitting you. You know, with the machine gun fire and the sniper fire, but... Other than that, uh, it was just everything was danger, that's all. It was mass slaughter. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I know it sounds like Hollywood, but you could look and you could see the stuff hitting the sand, the bullets hitting in the sand. 
or the, the shell, and then you'd run to that hole or you'd run past there, and then you'd stop and try and hide behind something or behind the bodies that were there already. And then when it come back again, then you'd go some more. It would sweep the beach back and forth. Plus you had the uh, 88 artillery shells coming in, you know, falling all over the place. If you happen to see it coming, then you could stop and hope it doesn't hit you, you know? And then you'd move on. You figured you wasn't going to get hit anyway, so... It, yeah. I mean, strange as it seems, that's the, uh, the train of thought you had, I guess, what you'd call it. I really don't know. And then, too, if you were putting it on a post, you'd get behind the post, you know, then you'd hook it. Then you'd have to leave and go somewhere else. You know, but still, uh, it wasn't because you were a better soldier or better trained or, you know, better, more efficient. You were just lucky, that's all. It wasn't your time. It I didn't realize it then, but I, now I realize it. Everywhere you looked, you could see the fire coming from the, from the beaches. And then on top of that, you had the artillery coming in, too, that would, you know, which in a way kind of helped us because uh, in a backhanded way, I guess you might say, because they would hit the beach and blow some of the obstacles away, too. So that kind of helped out. Then it would blow holes where you could jump in. And that helped out. We were on the edge of the beach on the dune lines. Then we had a little protection. And then I realized that uh, then you could see all the bodies floating in the water. That's when it dawned on me that this was for real. Because uh, one guy said, that then you realized they were using real bullets, you know. But like I said, when you, we were trained to a, uh, degree where you just automatically did what you had to do. This was serious business. It wasn't a game anymore, you know. When you're in combat, no matter which part of it you're in, it's the same level. I mean, they're shooting at you and, you know, if you hit you, the time's up, that's it. But I, I didn't think of it as a suicide mission, really. I was telling this guy, one uh, with a soldier, he, had, he must have had his helmet strapped on, you know, under his neck, and it blew his head off. And his, he was laying on the edge of the wall, and the tide would flip his neck back and forth, back and forth. And one of these guys, it, I guess it got to him. He picked up a wooden ammunition box and inverted and put it over the guy's neck so he wouldn't be looking at that, you know? Because we were laying on the beach. There was nowhere else for us to go. So we were just sitting there. And you had to see all that, you know? And then you'd see body parts floating up and all. Then late that afternoon, I guess it was maybe it was into evening, you know, really. They started shelling the beach again, and we were running to jumped in this slit trench they had. 
I guess a shell hit close to it or whatever happened, but the thing caved in on us and buried a bunch of us. And one guy never made it out. We just they couldn't get him out. You know, and that uh, that was kind of bad. Because after we got him out, well, they got him out, really. They had to get me out, too, but he, they were still trying to revive him, you know, and uh, it was bad. And that, that part there, I remember that. I've never dreamed about it, but I remember it. It's one of the things I remember. That, you know, that stuck with you. You get that and the guy's head. I didn't find out till years later how long my neck was when I started having arthritis in my neck. And the doctor told me, that's what it was. And I said, my neck ain't that long. He said, oh, yeah. And then I thought back to this guy. I could, I can still see that neck just whipping in the water. In our, my particular unit, we had, uh, me, Waddell, Walter, Devinian, and Bruce. There were five and one officer, and the officer was the only casualty. He got shot. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't dead. He, he was wounded. His wife is here today. He was wounded, so, but the, the rest of us got lucky, you know? After the beach was cleared, we uh, didn't do anything, really. We were just set up camp in a field, a bivouac in one of these hedgerow fields, and just stayed there waiting for them to come get us, take us back to England. See, the, the deal was they were supposed to bring us in. We would do our job, and then they would take us out. As they brought the infantry in, they would take us out. But then there were so many casualties that we just stayed there, and they took the, which was the right thing to do. They just took the casualties out, and we stayed there. I mean, we must have stayed there two, maybe three weeks, and then finally they brought us back to England. Well, we waited for the guys to come back from the hospital and wherever they were, you know, the survivors, and then we Eventually came back to Fort Pierce and regrouped and formed Team 25. I think we had an effect because we, uh, even though the casualties were heavy, I think we saved a bunch of people. They were able to get in quicker because the first guys coming in, believe me, the these guys, the, the artillery fellas, they had this thing zeroed into a science, and they would hit some of the boats coming in. Some of these guys never made it ashore. They just, you know, the boats blew up. I'm talking about the infantry and, and everybody else. And uh, by blowing these gaps in there, when the tide come in, they could bring these boats right up to the beach where they could come out on solid ground and didn't have to flounder around in the water as much. I, men, men, I was, I did what everybody else did. They, 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 they were called, they did their share, and they went in there and did what they had to do. And I think we helped out 
to hasten the end of the war. I really do. I mean, maybe we didn't, but uh, I believe we did. The heroes are dead. Anybody will tell you that. We just ordinary people doing the job that had to be done, that's all. One another thing that uh it happened this of course this didn't happen at Normandy. I come after we came back from, from uh overseas, they gave us a leave, I went home. And this man comes to my dad had a mom and pop store. And uh this man comes in the store and he wanted to talk to him. And so I go over there and his son had got killed over there. You know, and he was in our outfit. He got killed. And he kept asking me, did the Navy had sent him a telegram with the War Department saying that he had got killed, but they hadn't found his body. And he would, wanted me to tell him that he was a prisoner or whatever excuse that he was still alive, you know. And I kept telling him, we accounted for all our people. You know, we know who's dead and we know who's alive. Nobody was taken prisoner, nobody. And the thing that really, then I think affected me more than anything else, it was his only son, only child. And when he left, he put his hand on my shoulder and he says, well, son, I'm glad you're back. You know, that, that kind of, you know, that affected me a little bit because, like I said, at the time I was only 18 years old, it didn't, thought I was invincible, but that, uh, I felt sorry for the man, really. But other than that, we just did our job that we were supposed to do, like everybody else, you know? That was Bosun's mate, first class, Nelson Dubrock. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.